Do you remember 1990? It was 33 years ago, which sounds like so long and yet feels like so not. Back in 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope took flight, and its impact on astronomy is revolutionary. Hubble has offered us some stunning, breathtaking images of our universe. It's been operating now for decades, and Hubble has recorded over 1.5 million observations, including locations that are 13.4 billion, with a B, light years away from Earth. But the Hubble mission came within a hair's breadth, quite literally, of failure. Right after its launch, when Hubble began sending back its first images, scientists discovered a flaw in Hubble's primary mirror. It was known as, here we go, here's a fun trivia term for you today, a spherical aberration. And it prevented the mirror from focusing light on the same point. And because of that flaw, Hubble operated at only a fraction of its true potential. Part of what made Hubble unique was its existence as a space telescope operating without the interference of atmospheric distortions or human light pollution to cloud at any of its images. They are pure. But since it's a space telescope, that means to fix it, you have to go to space. And for a little while, NASA thought about returning Hubble to Earth and replacing the primary mirror repairing the telescope here. But experts working in Baltimore, Maryland and Boulder, Colorado came up with a different plan. By 1993, NASA had developed an upgraded version of Hubble's wide-field planetary camera with optical adjustments that compensated for that flaw in that primary mirror. And it sounds like an advertisement or a commercial. Taking that design as their cue, engineers created the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, COSTAR, C-O-S-T-A-R. Okay, so now if you're playing Beyond Boulder Dash and that word comes up, haha, <laughs> you win. Basically, the engineers created a pair of glasses for the Hubble telescope. Now the challenge is finding a way to make CoStar durable enough to withstand a space launch, but delicate enough to insert into its mirror array without disturbing any other of its parts. But according to a Smithsonian curator, David Dvorkin, the solution came to an engineer while he was in a German hotel, and he admired the ingenious design of their shower heads. Happily, Hubble's new pair of glasses functioned even better than expected. During Hubble's 30th anniversary year, that'd be 2020, and oh, we remember 2020, NASA celebrated its successes by releasing a series of images, including the famous Cosmic Reef image, a breathtaking image of giant red nebula and its neighboring blue nebula, a staggering 163,000 light years away. Here's the astounding part of the story. That flaw in that primary mirror that almost caused that very expensive Hubble mission to fail was less than one-fiftieth the thickness of a human hair. That's one divided by 50. Let me put that in terms that I can understand. If you have one pizza and you divide it 50 ways, that's as small as one fiftieth. And it's one fiftieth the thickness of a human hair. For all intents and purposes, it was an invisible flaw, but had devastating visible consequences fascinating. And we'll learn a little bit more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. 
This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. You are listening to the God's Word for Life podcast, which has just passed 200,000 downloads. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing this God's Word for Life companion podcast. Today's episode is entitled, Called to be Holy, and it comes from the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, Peter's epistles have suffered some unfortunate neglect in recent study. I can't remember the last time I really read from or studied or preached or taught from the books of First or Second Peter. They're very small. They're brief, especially when you compare it to Paul's writings, but they're no less valuable. Peter was writing to a people under persecution, and he played a crucial role within the 12 disciples and the early church. He was an important voice, a very important voice, a leading voice in the newborn New Testament church's formative years. According to the dictionary of the later New Testament and its development, these Roman Christians existed as cultural outsiders. They faced social persecution, such as slander and ridicule, and some of them may have even faced governmental persecution, such as imprisonment and banishment. Peter's message then is remarkably relevant now. We must live in the world, but we must not live of the world. For Peter, salvation was not just a past experience, but it was also a future hope. It was an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, verses 4 through 5. Peter's first exhortation was that we gird up our minds. Now, that imagery here is important. The common garment they wore back in their day was a long, probably ankle-length, sleeveless tunic. But you couldn't move very fast or work very easily wearing a long, ankle-length tunic. Sometimes when you did have to work hard or run fast, you would gather up the tunic and tuck it into a belt worn at the waist. That was considered girding up their loins. That's what it was called. And Peter says we need to gird up our minds. We set our gaze often on what we see rather than what we cannot see, but we must gird up our minds. We must live and look with anticipation toward what we cannot see, but we know will be. That will help us to live, as Paul taught Titus, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Bringing us to our first question. Why does true holiness begin with a changed mindset rather than with modified behavior? What are the dangers of changing what we do without changing what we think. What are the dangers, let me ask you this, what are the dangers of trying to live differently without being different? Now, adopting this mindset of living holy in an unholy world means simultaneously we have to reject what Peter called our former lusts or the way we used to live. And that was Peter's society. I know people look at our society today and say, man, it's just wicked and evil and just horrible. And sure, there are absolute segments and pockets where it is, but it's not new. Go back to Genesis. 
and read that every thought of every heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 verse 5. It's been pretty bad for a pretty long time. So this is not new, but we are still called just as Noah was called to live holy, as Abraham was called to live, Moses was called to live, Joshua was called to live, David was called to live, the early church was called to live. We are called to live holy. Paul pleaded with the Romans and the church in Rome in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Paul and Peter both understood we tend toward conforming rather than allowing God to transform us by fixing our eyes on what we cannot see. We get fixated on what we can, and so we're called to live holy. This path that leads to our salvation is first introduced as a path of nonconformity. It's marked by its opposition to worldly values and understanding and worldview. It is a countercultural, against the flow, against the stream, swimming upstream like a salmon type of living. Peter expected his hearers to make a full break with their former identities and lifestyles. In fact, in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter used the language of rebirth to describe how complete this transformational salvation must be. We have been begotten again. Does that sound familiar? Maybe a little John 3 language there? Born again, begotten again. 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. We're new. We're not... We're not me 2.0. We're not an upgrade. We are brand new, created in Christ Jesus. Next question. When you were saved, was it a struggle for you to put off your old lifestyle? And why or why not? And what are some common reasons why people struggle with this new lifestyle of holiness once we have been saved? This new identity that was given by God was an identity of life led by and filled with the Spirit. Pagans all around Peter and all around the early New Testament church were controlled by raging lust, and yet Paul and Peter called God's people to holiness. Peter called us children of obedience. All throughout Scripture, obedience to divine commands is the essence of our proper relationship with God. It's how we express our loyalty to God, our faith in God. It is our obligation We owe to him as his creation, and he's our creator. But it's also our understanding that he knows what's best, and when he calls us to be holy, it's because holiness is the best life we can live. But obedience alone doesn't offer us this entire picture of what it means to be in relationship with God. We're not just called to be obedient. We're called to be children of obedience, to have a relationship with God. This is not just boss-employee or master-servant. This is father-child. This is a loving relationship, and we are children of obedience to a loving father, our loving father. David celebrated precisely this in the 103rd Psalm. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, pitieth them that fear him. This family imagery that serves as the basis of this call to holiness and obedience, it softens the break we have to make with our former life. God is not calling us to obedience just because he can. He's calling us to obedience because it is the best life for us. He doesn't call us to leave our old ways without opening the doors to welcome us into the warmth and the safety of his family, a family who will never leave us, who will always love us. 
This promise of loving care, of freedom from past shame and guilt. Thank God for that. This sense of belonging, renewed purpose, all work together to motivate this purpose of new life Jesus offers us and is undergirded by the glorious hope of a heavenly reward that is undefiled, incorruptible, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. God has provided the way. He has given us promise. All that's left is for us to believe and obey. Peter continued, but as he which hath called you is holy, and he is holy. We learned that in the last episode. Our God is holy, without blame, without blemish, pure, perfect, spotless in all his ways. His motives cannot be corrupted. He can't be bought or bribed or swayed. He is holy. Then we are to be holy in all manner of conversation or conduct because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, many people focus on what we cannot do. They have what I like to call this Adam and Eve syndrome. Adam and Eve were focused on one tree in the garden they couldn't eat from. All the while, there is a bottomless, all-you-can-eat buffet of fruit trees all around. The Lord said of every tree of the garden, freely eat, bon appetit, enjoy, belly up to the buffet. There's just one, one tree in the middle of the garden. Stay away from it. Don't eat from it. And the day you do, you will die. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's some stuff in the world that you probably may know is out there, but I don't want you to taste of it. Which tells me this, there's a whole lot more privilege in relationship with Jesus than there is prohibition. Holiness is not just about what I cannot do. Holiness is about what I can do. In fact, what I ought to do. Instead of conforming to these former lusts, which only promise what it can never deliver, we are called to be holy in every aspect of our life. This commandment is rooted in the Old Testament from Leviticus 19, and all from chapter 17 to 26 of Leviticus, which, believe me, I know is tough sledding when you're reading your Bible. I get it. But it's been dubbed the Holiness Code, chapter 17 through 26. This group of chapters formed the very middle book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, suggesting that its teachings there in Leviticus are the heart of the Mosaic Law. As we know, Jesus understood his teaching not as overturning the law, but fulfilling the law. And the connection Peter drew here reaffirms the church's continuity with God's intended purposes for Old Testament Israel. He wanted them to be holy, and they were not holy much of the time. He wants his church to be holy, and he calls us to a life of holiness. Second, the verse Peter cited stands at the head of a chapter most notable for its variety of commandments. It almost appears haphazard, like it's just this hodgepodge of commandments. Throughout that chapter, separate arenas of life, right worship, good relationships with our neighbors, care for the needy, prompt payment of wages to employees when they are due their payment, you don't wait to pay them. All of that are presented as interconnected matters of, here we go, holiness. Did you know, boss, that paying your employee on time is considered holiness? Did you know that being a good neighbor is considered holiness? All of life, not just our worship on Sunday, is called to be holy. In the Old Testament, this holiness of God distinguishes him from humanity. 
He alone is morally and spiritually perfect. There's a beautiful passage in Habakkuk when Habakkuk says of the Lord, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on iniquity. Habakkuk was saying, God, you're so holy, you can't even stomach the sight of sin. That's how holy he is. And we are called to be holy. But how do we do that? We do that through the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God gave them this holiness code and 613 laws to help them to live and be and stay holy. But for us, we have the Holy Spirit. Leviticus 19 makes it clear that human holiness is only a product of divine holiness, a gift God graciously shares with us more than some status we can achieve or earn. In his book concerning Peter, McKnight was surely right when he Mentioned, Peter was calling his hearers to imitate God's holiness in their personal lives, much like children imitate their parents. If you've ever heard it said before, and and maybe you love it, maybe you loathe it, but hey, you look like your mom, or hey, you act like your dad, or hey, you have your grandmother's smile, or you have your grandfather's eyes. There's that family resemblance. Well, when people look at us, we are supposed to look like our Father, our Heavenly Father. When they look at us, they should say, hey, You have your dad's heart. You live like, you look like, you act like your father. Here's another question. What are some areas of life we don't commonly address in our discussions on holiness? And why do you think we overlook them? And further, can you think of any specific scriptural principles that apply and speak to those areas? Then Peter returned to exploring this glorious salvation Back in verses 3 through 9, salvation was future. But here, the focus shifts to its past aspect. Salvation as an already completed work that we have been saved. He saved me. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This life of holiness is an organic response. It's like a spiritual reflex to the fearsome wonder of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. God is our Father who comforts us, who encourages us, but here He also exhorts us and even warns us. The privilege of being God's child entails the awesome responsibility of living like Him, looking like Him, bearing His likeness in a way that honors and glorifies Him. The fear here is not necessarily scared of or frightful of, but it's in awe of. This knowledge that as a child of God, I am called to reflect and glorify Jesus Christ by my life. What does that look like? Is there any way to objectively, visibly measure that? Well, yes, there is. So glad you asked. It is called our unfeigned love of the brethren. Interesting, isn't it? We are called to love God, and how do we do that? Well, of course, we walk with Him, we talk with Him, we are faithful to Him, we spend time with Him, we hear Him, we listen, we obey, we read, we pray, but also because we love others. We're not just friends or companions or colleagues or co-workers or worshipers together. We are brothers and sisters. It's a unique type of love. It's given its own special term in the New Testament, Philadelphia, brotherly love. I've only been to Philadelphia once. I can tell you the city doesn't always live up to the name, but the church must always live up to the name. 
We're called to express that love from a pure heart fervently, a term we associate often with prayer, fervency, but it's hard work. (laughs) Has it ever been hard work to love somebody in the church family who was not easy to love? That is called loving them fervently. It's hard work, but it's worthwhile. Another question, why is love the ultimate expression of holiness? And what happens to holiness when we disconnect it from love? And Peter extolled God's abundant mercy and extolled the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were born again, not from silver, not from gold. We couldn't redeem ourselves. We couldn't buy ourselves out of our sin. But Jesus, with his precious blood, redeemed us and has begotten us again into a lively hope, an incorruptible, eternal hope. This chapter exalts the very character of our holy, gracious God. And just as God expressed his character in the concrete action on Calvary when he died for us, we express the reality of that character in concrete actions where we fervently love and care for our brothers and sisters. Near the end of his letter, Peter reiterated this theme, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are to love as we have been loved, not from our own resources, but from God's magnificent, endless supply in Christ Jesus. And we wrap this up. Ever been to a carnival fun house? Walked through there and tried to find your way through the maze of mirrors, wavy, warped distortions of our reflections. Too tall, too short, too thin, too not thin. It can be funny, but it can be frightening. Hard to forget. Without fail, they always seem to emphasize our worst aspects. I have a a fairly long chin, and when I go through those mirrors, my chin can tie my shoes. It's unbelievable. Now, when you consider that, it's unsettling to hear Peter proclaim that we're called to reflect the holiness of God. I have a teeny tiny flaw, one-fiftieth the size of a human hair, could nearly destroy the Hubble telescope mission. What damage do our own spiritual flaws do to our witness for Jesus Christ by trying to reflect him when we have those flaws? That's sobering, and it points to an awesome responsibility. We are the only Jesus many nonbelievers will ever see, the only Bible many of them will ever read. When they think of a Christian, if they think of you, do they think of Jesus? Do you look like Jesus? Do I look like Jesus? It's very easy to be short with a clumsy bag boy at the grocery store or snap back at the rude sales rep over the phone or glare at the driver who cuts us off on the highway. Those are just tiny little flaws, one-fiftieth the size of a human hair. But they distort the reflection of the one who endlessly loves us. Peter was very clear on this point in every manner of conduct and conversation, driving habits, eating habits, conversations, clothing choices, entertainment choices, all of them are falling in this domain of holiness. If you wish to reduce holiness to a list of rules, be warned, that list will be endless. There will be no finishing that list. Holiness involves every part of our life. And only when we truly understand that awesome sense of holiness and that call to holiness can we really truly understand this awesome sense of 
of our salvation. In the old life, we fashioned ourselves according to worldly lusts, but in this new life, God is fashioning us according to His character, and His character is holy. Last question. What are some important keys to seeing yourself as God sees you? Let's pray together. First off, to thank God that the work of salvation is still ongoing in our lives. What He started, He will finish if we will let Him. And then further, to ask God to help us recognize areas where we do not reflect His character and then commit to making the changes we need to make to live holy as He is holy. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this awesome gift of salvation. Thank you for this wonderful ongoing salvation in our lives that you have saved us, are saving us, and will save us. I pray, Lord Jesus, help us. Help me, Lord, if there's any flaw anywhere, even if it's infinitesimal, forgive me for it. God, if it's glaring, let me see it. If it's tiny, let me see it. I want to know if there's anything keeping me from living a life of holiness, living a life that reflects your glory, living a life that points people to you. I want to reflect you, Jesus. You are holy, and I want to live holy as you are holy. I pray this today and thank you. Help every one of my listeners to hear and heed this call to holiness as you are holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Hey, you heard earlier, you heard correctly, we just crossed 200,000 downloads. So thank you so much for making God's Word for Life part of your devotional life and maybe even helping disciple others to know Jesus. Be sure to subscribe, follow, like, notify, share, and it is the Christmas season, so be sure to let others know about God's Word for Life and let them know that they can be a part of this podcast and part of the God's Word for Life resources at PentecostalPublishing.com. And if you use promo code GWFL10, you can save 10% off your entire order. If it's the first time you use that promo code GWFL10, God's Word for Life. Next week, we continue this series of God's holiness and ours. And just quite frankly, it has helped me to see how holy he is and how far I have to go. But thankfully, by his spirit, we can do that. And next week, we will hear an episode entitled, Empowered by the Spirit to be Holy. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's word for life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.